Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 86. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Action Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Ron Michelotti. Ron is a science teacher and lesson design coach at Oxford Academy in Cypress, California. Throughout his career, Ron has taught at several academic levels, including middle school, high school, and undergraduates. Ron has also presented at district, state, and national science teaching conferences, often focusing on integrating NGSS science practices into the classroom. Welcome, Ron. Hello. How are you? Nice to talk to you again. I think we, we're breaking our rule of only speaking to each other at NABT conferences. So, um <laughs> 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 another six months to a year yeah 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 although you said that you're you're thinking about maybe trying to go to the read i am thinking about it we will see we'll see how how things go my son's graduating from high school so mm-hmm. we'll see. we will have to see yeah i can i can understand that my my son my my oldest is a junior um and so we, we've been talking about that and how how those things mesh in at the end of the year um, and I know Valerie May has a as a senior um, boy, and that's definitely a concern for her. She's been going to read the last few years, and is also concerned about uh, that timing. So I can appreciate that. But yeah, I think I might be the worst father ever if I miss that. So <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I you know, family's got to come first. It's I will say that going to the read is uh, it's not for everybody, but it's something that I think you get a lot out of it. Um, I've from talking to a handful of people, even people who said like, it's not for them. They're like, I'm glad I did it once. Um, it was a good experience. And then some people are like, yeah, that's, I've had that experience. I don't need to go back again. And then I'm sort of the kind of person, you know, as, as somebody who teaches AP, I, you know, I've gone to it twice now and each of the times I took so much back with me, I have not hit that diminishing returns point yet. So I'm going to keep wanting to go until I get to a point where it's more about the how how I felt sitting in that chair in that giant room <laughs> than the the things I can learn from that room. I absolutely agree. Yeah, there's quite a bit of reading though. Yeah, there's a, it, it's constant reading. <laughs> yeah, it's not uh, it's not it's not a it's not necessarily a comfortable <laughs> like week to sit. <laughs> no. But it is great. Yeah. Great experience. Yeah. And so let me be the first person to say happy, happy new year, because this is going to be our, our first episode of uh, 2020. So I can guarantee that nobody else has said happy new year to you yet. <laughs> no, you are the first. <laughs> yeah. As I, as I cheat and record here middle of December with you. So we, we were at NABT together and got back. It, believe it or not, that was like a month ago. It feels like it was years ago at this point. But how have you been since uh, since going back and, uh, and getting into the this sort of crazy time of year in between Thanksgiving and, and the December break? Uh, well, I just got back from my honeymoon. So I've been really busy. So it was two days after Chicago. We were off to Italy, uh, came back after uh, during the break. So after the break, and uh, it's just been, we've just been going nonstop, just trying to finish up the semester here and finish up college as well on top of that. So and then my wife also teaches college and high school, so we've been we've been uh, really, really trying to uh, finish up strong. Um, and my wife also was doing a food drive uh, this last couple of weeks, where she's raised thirty thousand dollars for for uh, families in need. So it's just been a whirlwind. Yeah, you're just saying your wife like it's she's not a past episode uh, 
<laughs> person. Yeah, yeah. She is a fantastic teacher. I think she was episode 69. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, uh, Amy was back on that. Uh, we, I talked to her last spring. Um, and so Amy Welsh, uh, so, uh, she, she was, it was great. Yeah. You guys said that you were, when you said that, I was like, you went to Italy and I was like, Oh, that must be sort of the, the delayed honeymoon there. So, uh, delayed honeymoon. Yeah. So, you know, we're teachers, so it was difficult to get some time off. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that there's like, you know, I guess the, maybe the good time is summer ish, but, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was great. You guys got to, you sort of had a double honeymoon. You had the lovely, uh, you know, November climate of Chicago, which you Californians were complaining about. (laughs) (laughs) And then you went to Italy. So, well, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the questions I like to ask everyone. And I, I really do not know this. We've had a few conversations the last few years um, and, and your your pathway through the classroom and, and sort of your background has I picked up a lot of little nuggets, but I don't know uh, this first question. So uh, how did you become a science teacher? What led you into the classroom? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if it's a, a fantastic answer, but I was first a, an engineering major. I love math. Um, I soon learned going to college that, um, I didn't like it as much as I thought I did, at least the theory. And so I figured, you know, what's the the thing that I enjoy the most and, uh, aside from math and that was science and what I thought was easy to me, of course, I'm thinking like a 19 year old, right? So easy and fun. So I switched to biology, but then I, you know, of course, being a planner, I quickly thought about, well, what can I do with a biology degree? Cause at that time I was not interested in getting an advanced degree. So I started looking into, uh, I went to the, the college career center and looked, I, I saw that I could be a ranger. I thought that was an interesting thing. I, I actually, you know, be called ranger Ron would be awesome. Um, <laughs> might be something after I could become a docent, maybe after retire, but you know, to, to actually live out that dream, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I was like, what am I going to do with a biology degree? I didn't want to be a lab rat. I didn't want to be stuck in a lab. And so I started thinking about my uh, previous experiences and I thought about my teachers and I thought about the ones that seemed to be having the most fun. And they were my AP teachers, believe it or not, believe it or not. And it was calculus and biology and I said, well, they seem like they have a lot of fun. And I don't want to have a family someday. So teachers seemed to be like a, a pretty good option. I didn't want to have a latchkey kid. I wanted to be present. And so, so yeah, I'm thinking as a 19 year old, I'm thinking about these things and I just decided that, you know, I'm not going to go for, let's say, the, the money. Um, I'm going to go for the experiences. I want to be a mentor to kids. Um, and I thought that I would be able to help, you know, certain groups of children, um, you know, those that are not as advantaged as others. So, um, and here I am, you know, 24 years later, um, actually enjoying it much more than I did um, when I first started. So you're 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 in your undergrad. You're you're cha- your master. You're I don't know how to say it. You've decided to change majors from sort of this math engineering into biology. Did you right. at that time? You know, we're talking a long time ago in terms of the <laughs> getting your certification process was a lot easier than it is now. Were you mm-hmm. able to be like uh, just a biology major who could tack on a certificate on top, or did you have to get a education degree? What, what was the landscape for you to to proceed? Uh, Great question. Um, well, I, I had an interesting beginning. So I graduated from college and I figured I would sub because I had already gotten into the credentialing program, but I didn't have my credential yet. So I went in for a job in my district that I'm working at now. 
and uh, they said, hey, can you teach math? I'm like, sure. Um, can you start teaching next week? I'm like, uh, what? Um, I've never, I mean, I've only done like a little gig here or there, you know, going into classrooms to teach little mini lessons and things, but never obviously taught. And, and they said, well, you know, we have a position over at Savannah High School. And uh, let me just call the principal right now. And that's how it happened. I, I was in the, you know, I was in jeans and I think like a t-shirt because I, I was just getting a, like a packet, like an employee packet at, you know, an HR. <laughs> and I was on my way over to meet with the assistant principal and principal. And they uh, had this impromptu interview and they said they were interviewing a couple other candidates. And uh, that was it. They contacted me a day or two later saying, we, we're going to hire you. And I started the next week with an emergency credential. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I was this, I was working on my credential and teaching at the same time. So, so no student teaching. I did. Well, not, not in the traditional sense. I still had a master teacher, but I was in the classroom. So she would have to come in and, and observe me. <laughs> uh, but, but no, I wasn't teaching with her per se every day on a daily basis. So it was very odd. This doesn't happen anymore. Uh, I, I don't really hear about emergency credentials anymore, but back in the mid nineties, there was a mass exodus of retiring teachers. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I was there to fill the void. Yeah. It, you, it's funny. Your story is actually not that different than mine. And I think you're the first person who sort of told the story like mine. Um, cause I went, um, you know, my my now wife, who at the time was my girlfriend, uh, her birthday is at the end of August. And she literally just went home to see her parents uh, for her birthday and then came back. And between her leaving for the weekend to go see her parents, I interviewed and was hired to be a science teacher uh, on like the, the last weekend of August. Very similar. Like I went in on this interview. Mine was not in jeans and T-shirt, but um, but still, it was definitely a case where they were like looking for a warm body. Um and I was in my credentialing program uh, or had been accepted to it. I was supposed to start it the next week. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I remember sitting down and we were like 15 minutes in and they're like, they're like, do you have any questions at this point? And I was like, well, I don't have a teaching certificate. Is that, um, you know, is that going to like hurt me in this process? Does that change where I am in terms of relative to other people? And I saw the other people across the table look at each other like, how much do we tell him that we're like just looking for a warm body? Uh, and then with the guy who became my department head, he said, at this point, we are viewing all interviewees at an equal footing, um, that that not having your credentials is not hurting you in this process. Like that was what he said. It was one of those clear like, no, like if you can, if you look like you can walk and chew gum, we're going to try to take care of you and get you in here. So you can multitask. Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, it was very funny. And just as like you, I did not student teach. Um, I had a teacher in my department who I, well, actually I went into her classroom and taught like four weeks of her honors biology class. Mm -hmm. And that was my student teaching. Like I had my my class load that I taught, and then I went in and taught her class for four weeks, and she, I was her student teacher in her room for one of her yeah, classes. But the well, mine was a little bit worse because school had already started, mm. so they had yeah they had three weeks of subs, so they were you know throwing papers at the subs, and so I had to be this twenty three year old you know know nothing teacher uh, into that environment. It was uh, it was it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I always wonder about like how I like in back looking back, I was like, oh, this is like the worst way of getting somebody into teaching. And now I've now met a, somebody else who did the same thing. And here it is, you know, 
20 plus years later and we're both still doing this. So so clearly it didn't run us off. So either it's not the worst thing in the right. world or we are just really stupid. And <laughs> yeah, that you mentioned that because that's what the uh, the admin was, uh, what they said to me. They said, we're, we're just fearful that we might scare you away. And uh, so it's funny that I haven't, I haven't thought about that in 20, 25 years. So Anyway, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so then you get uh, clearly you 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 were in the room for uh, for the year. You sort of made it through math, but uh, you're not predominantly a math teacher at this point. You're a science no. teacher. So mm-hmm. so like, how do you transition from this sort of emergency gig into like actually you know teaching what you want? And by the way, similarly, I was teaching physics predominantly that first year, and I am not a physics teacher. So uh, oh. that that was the other interesting parallel. I was teaching quite a bit of math. I was teaching health and physics and physical science, not biology which is my passion. So how did you transition into sort of teaching more to the to your passion? Well, uh, I had to go through two credential programs because the one I was currently in wasn't going to, or they were not going to observe me. You know, <laughs> I had to have a supervisor that comes out and said it was too far away. And so I had to eventually drop that program, get into a new one. So, and then all the while, you know, survive the classroom. So uh, f- my first year, so like I said, I was teaching bio and math. And then my second year, I taught integrated science one. Or no, I'm sorry, it was integrated science two. And so they were, they were primarily juniors and seniors. And so uh, so that was what I taught my second year. And I really didn't know what I wanted to teach. I knew it was definitely bio and not so much math, although math sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually thought about possibly going back and get a credential there just to <laughs> teach it. But, but that's just for pedagogical reasons um, and differences with how math teachers traditionally teach, but I digress. Um, so uh, then I, so I thought, well, chemistry was a decent gig and I took a lot of chemistry as all bio majors do. And so that's what I, honestly, that's what I taught mostly. So I, my third year I was teaching uh, honors chemistry and regular chemistry. And that was my full load. Uh, from there, I went to AP chemistry and just chemistry. And, uh, and then eventually that transitioned to AP bio and chemistry. And then, um, I, then I started teaching like a year or two of just, uh, you know, general uh, biology. And then I went back to teaching chemistry again and just kept on teaching chemistry and AP bio, chemistry, AP bio for, I don't know, a decade or two. So, and now I'm teaching seventh grade <laughs> and college. So I'm all over the place. Yeah. It was like, uh, you, so I, again, sort of that transition of those kind of years, it sounds like, were you in the same school for all these times or did this involve switching from different schools? Because I know you're in a giant district. Were you switching around school to school or were you just in one school? No, I was at the same school. I was just bouncing around the department. So I didn't leave uh, Savannah until a few years ago. So, uh, so I didn't get into middle school until I made the transition to Oxford. Okay. But yeah, all those, all that transitioning was just at one school site. So are you, and so people who transition like that, there's sort of two drivers for that. One is sort of intellectual curiosity. And I could absolutely see you being somebody who is intellectually curious and wanting to, you know, you know, say, oh, I'm kind of curious about that and driving there. The other person is the sort of utility infielder, somebody who can do everything. And so as a result, your department head comes to you and go, we have an extra section of X can you shift over and teach X? So which of it is for you? Is it you sort of seeking these out or is it you because of your, you know, various competencies having you shifting year in and year out? Well, I think at the school site I was at for 21 years, it was, I mean, I was definitely utilitarian or I could be utilized in different areas, but, um, 
but I think it was mostly just what the school needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they needed me to teach an extra section of this or that, or you know, I lost a section of AP for whatever reason because of a declining enrollment, then I would pick up something. Mm-hmm. But I would say at Oxford Academy, I am pretty much, you know, I've been doing this for a while. So wherever they need me, I go at this point. So, um, but in, in terms of leaving uh, my my past school to my current school was definitely out of curiosity, you know, because I had been at one school site with a c- culture that, you know, hadn't changed too much, you know, and it was just, I was just curious about what another school would be like, even though it was still within the same district. Yeah. So, so what was that, what was that drive? I mean, that's, that's a, for me, a very unusual thing. And I teach in a, you know, Massachusetts school districts and California school districts are <laughs> completely different entities uh, in terms of, of, of how they're structured and that sort of thing. You know, I, I teach in a big school, but there's only one high school, only one middle school, that sort of thing. Uh, what, what led you to sort of seek out what were, what was it about maybe switching to middle school that was, uh, intellectually driving you or what was your curiosity about that? Uh, well, um, when I was interviewed for, there were two positions actually, cause we had two retirements at my current school and one was for chemistry, which was perfect. Cause that's primarily what I had taught and to teach. Um, but there was also the seventh grade section and a biology section. And so when they hired me, um, they said, what do you want to teach? And I said, I will, you, you can put me wherever you need me. So we hired, you know, they hired two teachers. It was me and someone else. And so they chose that uh, this other individual would teach chemistry and then I would teach seventh grade and biology. Now I've been doing that for a few years now. And, and I mainly do it to not rock the boat or the department. Cause if I say, you know, I want to teach, let's say chemistry, it kind of messes up other people's schedules and I don't want to do that. Um, but I was definitely curious about seventh grade because I had never taught that age group before. You know, like I said, I didn't have a traditional student teaching experience. And typically here in California, they want you to teach at two different levels at the secondary level. Hmm. So you teach, you know, a few classes at the seventh grade and a few at the high school level. I never had that experience. So, so I was a little nervous, but, but I also wanted to test myself if I could, you know, if I'm a decent teacher, I should be able to teach both. So it was definitely a challenge to get us a challenge, I guess. <laughs> so, so what do you, I mean, obviously you didn't, you know, you don't want to rock the boat, but at the same time, if you felt like it was, you know, you weren't being successful or that it was, you know, <laughs> terrible, uh, you are a veteran <laughs> enough teacher that you could probably pull your weight and find a place out of there, but you've, you've stuck with this group. So what is it about this group that is, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you are somebody who, from our conversations, um, enjoys uh, just the right amount of challenge and diversity. So, like, what is it that is sort of interesting and challenging about this shift for you? Well, I didn't know I was going to love seventh grade so much, honestly. Um, you know, the kid, and they're only 11 or 12 years old. They still have a passion uh, for learning. They still love science. Um, and that is oftentimes squelched at the high school level, whether it's um, the system or the teachers or both or just adolescents, I don't know. But when they're 11 and 12, they're still excited. Um, They still want to help. They still smile a lot, laugh a lot, say thank you as they leave. Um, They ask a lot of questions. They have a lot of energy. Um, 
and just I, that's oftentimes missing at the high school level. At least that's my experience. And so the, their cute little faces, believe it or not, is what keeps me there. You know, even though I'm not teaching this, you know, this high level, I'm not talking about or teaching the operon, for example, you know, and recombinant, you know, plasmids and, and transformation and all of that, which I sometimes miss, but it's just this, this innocence and this curiosity that I really do enjoy at the seventh grade level. Yeah, there's a I, I coach because my my youngest is is currently 12, so I've been coaching this level the last few years, and they there's definitely a group of them that like they're starting to want to be a little cool, but yeah. they're they're pretty easy to like trick into play, <laughs> mm-hmm. like even the coolest of the cool you can get them to play pretty fast. Like they're not very good at being cool and they still want to play. So if you get something that's interesting and engaging, you can get them to play real fast. Exactly. And it's a little more difficult at the high school level. Yeah. It's possible. It's possible, but it's just much easier with a level four build. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, this sort of transitions a little bit also, I think, into like what you work at. I, I'm trying to remember what Amy said, where you were like, you were like the king of rubrics or something like that um, <laughs> in district. But, um, you know, we saw each other at ABT and you were co-leading, um, you know, this particular session on modeling this year. Um, and I know that modeling is something that was on, you know, if you searched the word modeling in the table of contents on the online thing, there were like seven different sessions on modeling. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot. It made us nervous actually. Yeah. It was a, I mean, I, I, your session was well attended, so it wasn't, there was definitely a need to have that many sessions on modeling, but you, you, uh, you know, you ha- were modeling many key aspects of your teaching practice and understanding how modeling is used in your classroom and lo- what it looks like with your kids. But I- I'm curious how your view of modeling, because you've been teaching for a long time, you have a breadth of experience, you've worked at various levels. Like, what has your journey and understanding been about, like, what does it look like to model with students in the classroom? Well, um, if you attended my presentation, which you did. <laughs> I did. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, I thought, honestly, I thought a model was some kind of three dimensional physical entity, you know, so, you know, a jello mold, or I'm going to build a cell, or uh, if we're talking about moles and chemistry, I'm going to make a mole. And I I don't know, it's just, you were going to build something. It was somewhat, I don't want to, I got to be careful about calling things project based these days, but, you know, traditionally, you know, some kind of project. And I never had thought that it was what, you know, you know, what it is today and, and what I talk about. So yeah, everything was just, it was completely different. I, and, and it's funny because I was so against, um, even going back, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I'm like, I am not going to do a gel mold of a cell. I'm sorry. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know why I don't want to do it, but I just knew that there was not a lot of learning happening during that process. That was an art project to me. <laughs> I had always been that way. And I didn't have a way to articulate that other than what I just said now. And so today, um, it's, it's just what we do. I mean, if you read any journal articles, you know, that are coming up and with some kind of metabolic pathway for something or some transduction pathway or cell signaling, there's, there are models that go along with it all the time. Right. And they have these certain components and, you know, there's always some kind of caption to explain this complex model that they uh, came up with. So 
yeah, so it's changed drastically, which is an understatement. Mm. Yeah, the word that seems to be important uh, from changing it from arts and crafts was, and, yeah. and you definitely talked about this, uh, was the word conceptual. Uh, like, what is the concept that you have? And specifically, what is the the concept that is in the head of the kid with mm -hmm. regard to the model? Like, it's trying to get their mental view, their conception of it to be expressed externally somehow. Um, and that doesn't have to be arts and crafts. Um, no. And someone could argue that it could be. It could but be. But you would have to add some other components to it, I feel. Yeah. And so, I mean, in, in what we were doing is we were um, drawing ugly pictures uh, <laughs> to get our understanding of what something was that was out. And we were mirroring sort of, we were using a rubric that you say you use with your students. So, you know, you're not making a jello mold with, with, uh, of a cell with your kids anymore. Um, but if you are looking at processes, and I don't know enough about the seventh grade standards to know whether you do cells with your, your kids, but, but like what, what does that process of modeling look like with your students? Um, well, we don't really teach cells because mm -hmm. um, um, we decided as a district that we we're going to do the integrated model. So they're learning earth science and chemistry and biology and physics all at once simultaneously, mm. as opposed to being fragmented saying, okay, okay, today kids we're learning chemistry and then tomorrow we're learning physics, you know, type of thing. Um, so, uh, we've elected to put cells, um, as a district and I think also for the state, uh, in eighth grade. So, I mean, we might make mention of it, uh, maybe if we're talking about character characteristics of living things, for example, we might mention it, but we don't get into cell parts. And actually I think cell parts is largely been taken out of high school by the way, but yeah. so anyway, so, uh, but you know, in terms of a most recent model that we've done, um, if I'm, if let's say we're this, I guess this is more traditionally physical science. So if we're looking at heat transfer, you know, I might make them or have them make a comic strip and they would have to explain, because that's what you do in a model, you know, visually in this particular model, how, you know, what happens to the particles, you know, atoms, molecules, whatever, uh, at that level, um, when something goes through a phase change. And they get to choose whatever they want. Uh, they could be funny. It could be not even real. It could be like the Wicked Witch of the West melting, you know, so suspend your disbelief here. But, you know, but if it was truly a phase change, what would the particles look like? I need a zoom in function. I need, um, I need to have an explanation as to what is happening, you know, within these panels of this comic strip, for example. So, so there's, you're, so you're definitely bringing in the art, you know, in terms of the art part and steam. Mm -hmm. um, but but also there's a lot of science going on there. There's a lot of creativity that goes on, on that particular model. And I still need to have those components. So my kids know that all models have their components, which are the, the you know, the things that are in their model and they should be labeled. Uh, they know that we need to, um, or they need to express or explain in a way how these things or these components are connected. You know, what are the relationships there? Uh, and then it has to make sense to the observer too, whoever's reading it or looking at it. And then lastly, the scientific connections, the theory needs to be there. So really looking at scientific accuracy and, um, and then other models you could actually bring in and they could cite, you know, other, other scientists or maybe even, um, well, what, I guess it could be other high schools and, and, uh, college resources that they could use to help support 
uh, their explanations, for example. But that's just one thing um, that we do. And they're, the kids are pretty good about it because I could just say, hey, what do all models have? And I say components. What else do they have? They have arrows. And what else do they have? There's a description, you know, it's like, good, you guys got it. And so and then so we, we do modeling all the time. That was just one example. So do you use the models to help, you know, um, drive some of the other practices? Like, do you use the models as like a, a foundation to then either, you know, ask a bunch of questions or to design investigations? Do you use the models as a kickoff to other other activities that can access those practices? I think so. Uh, I think sometimes that's unintentional. And, um, you know, I'm really big on trying to be intentional mm -hmm. uh, just in general as a teacher. Um, but yes, I mean, naturally you're going to have, you know, systems, um, you know, system models. So, they, you know, we could point out, you know, in terms of like cross-cutting concepts, we could point out like, well, what are the systems that are involved within this uh, phenomenon, for example, or whatever we're looking at, whether it's, you know, matter flow, uh, matter cycling or energy flow. Um, so, so I think there are a lot of practices that come out of it. You know, sometimes we can, for example, look at data and then we can incorporate data into, uh, you know, quantitative data into our models as well. So we can have some kind of mathematical computational, uh, logic based model. Mm -hmm. So I, I think I do that. Um, but sometimes I, I might not know that I'm doing it, but, um, and I feel bad that I don't, but, um, but I definitely know that if I'm teaching modeling, I am hitting a lot of the other practices. I'm hitting a lot of the cross-cutting concepts, but, um, one thing I'm trying to do is just make sure that I'm being more intentional and pointing out those types of things and having the kids articulated as well. Yeah, I, that was one of the things I think that was one of my takeaways that I from both your session and and some of the other sessions that I started to notice for myself and my own teaching is that um, I hadn't realized how I personally had looked at those eight NGSS practices and like sort of looked at them like, oh, I need an activity where the kids are going to ask questions. And so we're now going to run this thing where we're going to ask questions. I need an activity where they're going to build a model. Um, and I was looking at it in a very boxy kind of way that way like mm -hmm. there and I do think there's value in you know doing something that highlights the particular skill mm -hmm. um, but in reality when students are doing science the reason that there are those eights is because these are the practices you do when you do science so once the kids have le learned sort of the vocabulary behind these things you can use them to you know, do an activity where they're hitting multiple of those practices all at once. And that was what I was noticing in the, in our session was like, oh, I could use this to lead into an investigation or, you know, we did a phenomenon. So we're now modeling based off this phenomena. Now let's you use that to drive into question asking and drive it into an investigation. And here now all of a sudden I've done this one thing that leads into four practices as a natural flow. Absolutely. And, and I think one thing that's changed a lot in the last few years with NGSS is that uh, at least with me, is that I'm much more transparent. You know, there's very clear, I'm saying that this is a practice of science. I'll have it up on the board and I'll have them explain and reflect. And how is this, how does this represent patterns or how does this activity represent patterns? I want you to take two or three minutes to write about it and we're going to share out and uh, you're going to share with your group first. Then we're going to share out as a whole group. And so doing more of those types of things, whereas uh, I, I never did that when I first started teaching. <laughs> Yeah, student voice is is definitely come a long way. 
Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, so one of the other things that I mentioned in your your introduction is, in addition to you know your teaching, and I think we've got some background. We didn't bring up the the college teaching, which I think could be a, a whole other interesting side note. Um, but I think that's maybe related. But part of your title is also that you are a lesson design coach. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> what does a lesson design coach do? Yeah, that's a, a pretty good question. If if yeah, if we're outside our district. So we're very lucky in our district where each school site has a lesson design coach. And so we're basically TOSAs or part-time TOSAs. So I get- What is a a TOSA? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Teaching on special assignment. Oh, okay. Or teacher on special assignment. So, you know, my job is to obviously teach. So I have a few sections of seventh grade science, and then the rest of it is to basically um, take care of all professional learning on campus. So all our professional development um, essentially runs through me. Huh. And so all our late starts, I don't know if you have late starts over there on the East Coast. We have, we've, we've experimented with them. <laughs> okay, yeah. So we have every Monday, we have a late start and school starts at nine as opposed to eight. And so during that time, we, we meet and we PD, we, professional, we do professional development. And so I'm the one that's collecting data in, in terms of what our site needs um, and then meeting with a PD team. Uh, so I have a smaller and extended PD team and I meet with the principal and admin and cabinet, just trying to figure out what direction, um, uh, we want to go. Uh, also I, I attend monthly meetings at the district level. So I hear about all the current district initiatives or, you know, where we would like to go as a district and, um, giving us additional information to bring back to our school sites and then integrate that into our professional development time. Uh, I'm also a coach, uh, not coach in the sense of a, you know sports, but uh, I'm a peer coach. So if, if teachers need help, newer teachers need help, um, then they would you know schedule time with me and then we'll you know, work things out, whatever their needs are. Um, I also take teachers on learning walks. And I don't know if you have those over there as yeah. well, but what we do is uh, I'll take a group of about seven or eight teachers and we'll walk into classrooms, um, focusing on teaching and learning that happens in the classroom. Uh, we're not observing the teachers per se. We're just looking at what the students are doing. And then uh, we'll, we'll sit in a classroom for a few minutes to 10 minutes, and then we'll um, go into another, pop into another classroom randomly, and then into another classroom. And then we would, you know, we'll take a little bit of a break and we'll do you know, some kind of protocol to talk about what we saw in terms of what we observed and how that may affect how we might teach in the classroom or how it influences um, how you might design a lesson, for example, or is there a practice that you took away uh, based upon what you observed? And so we do four of those per year, but uh, every, let's say quarter, I, I try to switch it up. So for example, this year we had our new hire learning walk, which is just to expose them to our school. Our second one that we had, we had a shadow walk. So we shadowed a student. So we basically followed a student around and saw what happened with them. And then um, we have one coming up in a couple of weeks or a few weeks with break where we're going to do a peer coaching or peer teaching type of thing where we'll walk into each other's classrooms and observe how they teach Mm -hmm. and um, get feedback and, um, just do that. Just, you know, just trying to break down that wall and allowing teachers to be vulnerable and accept uh, professional, I'd say, uh, 
criticism, constructive criticism. And so, yeah, I just do everything that's PD. It's not just science. It's all levels. It's all discipline areas, all domains. Uh, it's, it's uh, hopefully that answers your question, but it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. It sounds like a massive job. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so how many, um, how many teachers are in your building? Like, right, um, right. well, we have multiple buildings, um, because we live in Southern California. So we got to go outside <laughs> and go between buildings. So, uh, I don't know. We have about five buildings or so, um, teachers, we have about 40 to 45 teachers. We have a, we're a relatively small school. Okay. That makes it a little bit more manageable. So 40 yeah. to 45, uh, teachers. So how many students is that serving? We're about 1300 or so. Okay. Yeah. And so the, in addition to, so are you also the only like coach, um, in this team? Is it, I'm, I'm curious about the design team. So like, is, are you the only person for your building that's in charge of sort of all of those levels or are like the department heads play a role or, you know, how, what are the other, you know, what is the other support that you have for this, this very ambitious, uh, task that you're tackling? Well, I would say that if, you know, if there was a hierarchy, it would be, you know, district to, you know, admin to school leadership team to me, and then department chairs would fall under that, I suppose. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're pretty good in our district. Um, you know, our district's pretty you know innovative and kind of ahead of the curve, I, I feel, I mean, based upon conversations I have with people in other districts. Um, we make sure that our department chairs are our instructional leaders mm-hmm. on campus. So so that's why, you know, and they all go to the school leadership team meetings that we have, but then I will be running the school leadership team meeting sometimes in terms of the PD aspect of it. And so essentially what I'm doing is I'm asking them, um, you know, for them to do whatever it is, X, whatever the task is for that month, uh, PD task, um, that they're in charge of that. They're in charge of disseminating that information. They're in charge of modeling um, you know, a particular practice. So, so yeah, definitely the department chairs are really, really important in terms of instruction. So it's not just me, but, but yeah, I guess everything kind of goes through me. <laughs> yeah. The funnel. You're, you're, you're part of that funnel. Yeah. So the other thing that I was thinking about is, uh, what sort of, um, community structures exist for teachers beyond that. So like, are there, you know, do you have a, a, a critical friends group or PLC structure within that, that sort of facilitates you getting groups of teachers together? Um, or is this, uh, is it an opt in system or, you know, how do you, how do you get the communities of teachers to come together to work towards these common tasks? Um, well, we definitely, you know, use the PLC model, um, professional learning communities. Uh, I wouldn't say that teachers have an opt-in. Um, I think they're opted in already. <laughs> so uh, we do follow the PLC structure fairly well. And we have for, I don't know, nearly a decade, at least for our district. I can't speak for, I guess I can speak for Oxford, even though I wasn't there and they were doing the same thing before I got there. So yeah, we, we meet in, we meet in groups. So we meet in our uh, department, we call them department PLC groups, maybe two, two times a month. So we have four late starts per month and usually one, sometimes one is used for admin type of things. Uh, but even though we're trying to steer away from that, anything that could be communicated, that's kind of business could be done through email. 
mm-hmm. and that our PD time is sacred. And so we don't want you know admin to muddle that up too much, although sometimes they have to. And then there's usually one you know all staff PD, which is ran largely by me or the the others within the professional group or my PD group. And then, uh, but they're all while we're having our all staff PD, they're still in their their groups, their department PLCs, and then like I said, there are a couple late starts per month where they get to work on their own with some kind of task, or if they just need time to talk and work out a test, or if they're working on a benchmark or a performance task assessment, or their learning targets, you know, that's time for them. Hmm. So when you're saying you're saying department. You know, PLC. So does this mean that generally speaking, that if you were to meet a group to do one of these learning walks, you would be going in and grading a group of teachers who are all, say, English teachers, or is are there cross cuts within those PLC groups? Um, normally, the PLC groups are pretty much within their area. So we have science, English, math, just like I'm sure any other school. Mm-hmm. And but there are times when we're doing learning walks, it's different. That is cross curricular. So. Uh, we get people from everywhere. So it'd be business, math, science, English, PE, all at once within that group. So in that sense, we do, we are multidisciplinary, but we try, we're, we're, that's actually one of our tasks, if we can, is to try to bring together normally, you know, groups that are separate from each other or stay away from each other, like, like English and math, you know, sometimes, you know, coming together to teach a particular unit and and share a part of of that unit so if you're teaching math how can i support you know the english department and and then also conversely how can english help support you know math for example so so in that sense we are multidisciplinary but yeah i mean i'd say on most of the time 90 85 percent of the time we're working within our domains Hmm. That's that's interesting to hear because I teach in a school that is um, extraordinarily departmentally divided. Like we mm-hmm. are structurally that way. Um, so the the way the building is designed that, you know, you teach in a particular area and you are with those groups um, and it's really hard to break down those barriers. And I think that there is a group that you know, sort of talks about breaking down those barriers, sort of bringing us together um, with maybe the ultimate goal of some of that cross-curricular discussion. But that cross-curricular discussion is so far away from where our current, like, structure and <laughs> philosophy and culture is at the moment. It seems it seems daunting to have professional conversations that might lead down to those kind of conversations. Um, so well, to- I think one- helps with us is that um, we just started doing this recently and it's actually I don't know if they love it but um, we all meet in a multi-purpose room mm-hmm. on our charts so PE sitting down you know within their respective groups but what's nice about it is that you know if I have a question a PE question I can just go walk two tables down and I can have a conversation with a PE teacher or the department or the department head so that's one nice thing whereas before in all my other years uh, experience, we would meet, you know, the science people would meet in a science room and that would be our PD time. And we never really would converse with other groups. Yeah. So nice here. Yeah. We, we may, so we have our monthly faculty meetings um, where we are in a multi-purpose room. And in that case, you actually don't, we do not have a strong, um, we have a strong PLC 
culture that is not defined. <laughs> so <laughs> like, like the, even within the departments, like the chemistry teachers work very well with the chemistry teachers, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's really hard. Even when I want to know what the chemistry teachers are doing, it's hard for me to find time to talk to chemistry teachers. Um, so even within my department, uh, it's, yeah. it's hard to find time to talk to the biology teachers, but it, we make it, that's something that we prioritize and do that. So from a strength of like professional learning, there's really good crosstalk usually within subjects in our building because mm-hmm. the individuals who work in the building prioritize that and then literally seek each other out to find that time. But it's not structurally set up to do that. And it's a lot of our own individual time that we invest to do that. So that's sort of where I'm starting. And so hearing you talk about this, like very cool, like I, that'd be awesome. Like I'd love to do all these things. Um, thinking about the bridge between where my school is, and I know a lot of other schools are like us, to, as you said, a very forward thinking, progressive thinking, modern thinking about the way to establish professional culture. Um, it's it's interesting to try to wrap my head around it because I'm I'm envisioning what you're talking about in my building and, uh, you know the as I mentioned sort of I could see people opting into this system but it would be a it would be a massive cultural shift for us. It, it takes time. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. You can't just do it overnight and say this is what we're going to do, folks, and then it's going to happen. Yeah. It's it's everything's slow. Everything's really slow in education. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I culture is not easy too. Yeah, and I also wonder about like what the leadership within that we are building is. Like, how long and stable has it been? Is it the kind of thing that when you bring in new leaders, is the hiring part of this you know arc that you're working towards to bring in leadership that's gonna this is gonna be a good fit for those people? Yeah, it's um you know, there's this ebb and flow, right? They, they talk about the glory years of one particular you know, administrator and then how we got another one and everything, you know, went, went poorly, went down south. But I think what teachers need to understand is that, I mean, yes, leadership helps, having a strong leader helps, but, you know, it's ultimately our school mm-hmm. and we can drive and move administrators. Um, when they leave, the school shouldn't change. You know, we need to own our practices, our support systems, um, you know, how we interact with one another, um, what we're doing for kids, we should have a shared vision. So, you know, plop in one admin, remove them, that they shouldn't be that critical. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, what does it say about your school culture if one entity being added or leaves dramatically changes it? How strong is your culture if that's the case? Correct. Yeah. So, but that, like I said, it's not easy. And this is, this is my job. It's, you know, my job is to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say manipulate, but kind of, right. Yeah. You know, so I have to listen, you know, I have to get, be as good of a people person as possible and also have a vision and also get them to see my vision, to see our vision together and steer this boat in, in a positive direction without, being one that's telling them what to do because you know no teacher likes to be told what to do so but making them feel relieved that what we're doing was their idea and really it was mine <laughs> <laughs> well and but it, you know shared you know across the district or admin or whatever cabinet yeah or to take something to take a new idea to take a, a different idea to take a practice that they're not currently using and help them understand how it's not radically different from what their their individual vision is for their classroom and that by 
adding this in, they're not taking away from accomplishing their goals, but can actually strengthen and fit into who their identity is as a, as an instructor. Absolutely. I mean, we want them to make it theirs, right? And yeah. we got to be very careful about adding things on because teachers do work really hard and we are stressed. And so oftentimes they feel that professional development or what we're asking of them is just an additional thing and trying to make it clear to them that it's, we're not trying to add anything or I'm going to be clear. And I'll say this directly to the staff. Like, I'm not trying to make you do more. I'm just trying to change or get you to see that we can do things differently, right? So we could supplant or we could do this in lieu of, um, but we don't, we're not trying to say that you have to do more, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when I, you know, I'm sort of known within my, within my group, the people I teach with that I'm somebody who is happy to just like throw an entire unit out and rebuild it mm -hmm. from the ground up. Um, which some people are very uncomfortable with. Uh, but the reason that I like to do that is I find that if I take the existing structure, the one that we did the previous year, and I don't throw it out and I go back sort of to first principles about like, what is our goal and what are we trying to do? And then it's not to say that I don't bring back activities I did the previous year, but if I start with the existing schedule that happened last year, what I find is like when, oh, I found this new activity and this new activity and this new activity, and then I try to shoehorn them in to all the things that I did last year. Whereas if I say, let's not do that, what we did last year, let's start and say, all right, what are our learning objectives here? And what is our arc? And what is our time frame? And then I start from a blank slate and then draw from all of the things that I know about and then piece them together in a logical way and then move them around. It provides a degree of freedom to not overstuff my curriculum. That's, that's an excellent point. Because uh, I do find even with myself that I still like what I did before mm -hmm. and I found this new thing that I, that I want to try or things that I want to try. And then all of a sudden it's like, why am I two weeks behind? <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I need to be better at cutting. Yeah. And I think cutting is hard. I mean, cutting is like, if you start with the existing structure of this is the way my unit X goes, unless there's something that was like clearly something you didn't like, which, you know, honestly, when you get to like 15, 20 years in, you don't put in things that you don't like, like, <laughs> yeah. but you also find exciting things that you want to add. And so that's, that, that is fundamentally the dilemma. I noticed that about our curriculum, like a handful of years ago in biology that like the volume of what we know about biology is so broad and to teach a first year biology course, you cannot teach all of the things. Like it's just impossible. Mm -hmm. You have to make choices. And and we had these units that like, it was just slammed with information and slammed with content and like activity, 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 activity. And there was no time for student reflection or student voice because we were just like packing all these activities in together. And it was, it was insane. It was like, you can't do this in three weeks or four weeks or whatever time frame we had set aside. And that's when I started to say, well, let's start over. And what would this look like when we started over? And I, I found that I was much happier with the pacing of my units when I would do that. I like that. I like that a lot. So yeah, I mean, yeah, that's one big thing that science teachers just in general are having is that they still want to teach all the stuff they've taught in the past, <laughs> but now we have to teach the SEPs and the CCCs. And so it's more I'm like, well, no, that should be center, right? Yeah. Um, we, I mean, these are the things that they're going to stick with them. These skills are going to stick with them. All this random information that you're, that you're, that you're giving them is going to go away. 
but there's a good chance they're not going to forget how to graph or analyze data, right? There's a good chance they're uh, going to be better writers as a result of this or, or write better arguments as a result of this. And honestly, I'm getting to the point where I know, and I've known this for a long time before NGSS, that this is what's most important. It makes what I teach more meaningful. I feel better about it. I, I go home uh, and I'm happy about what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I ever went home 10, 15 years ago. And it's like, I oh, man, I really rock this chemical balancing stuff, right? They're, <laughs> they just loved it, you know, and they're never going to forget it. I mean, that's, I mean, it's just, it's just a little thing that, you know, there's so many other, so many other skills and transferable skills that they're learning during that process. That's more important than the balancing itself. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing is that if you pack things in and you go there and you don't have those reflection pieces, you miss their misconceptions. You miss what they aren't sure. doing well. It becomes a like a checkbox type curriculum. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was I I just gave back labs. I have amazing AP students, but I just gave back labs, and I realized that they were not interpreting error bars correctly in their write-ups. Right. And this is something they worked collaboratively on and handed in. And what was happening is that they were telling me that if the two data, if the, the error bars didn't overlap, overlap, the data was statistically significant. But if the data bars overlapped, the data was not statistically significant. And I was like, mm -hmm. no, no, no. If the error bars don't overlap, the difference is statistically significant. And if they overlap, the difference is not statistically significant. The data is significant in both instances, but that's not the wording <laughs> that they were using. And you know, these are very bright kids. And I had done an activity on stats and we did error bars. And I was like, yep, yeah, they got it. And then I had them do something more complicated. I didn't just rush on to the other thing. I had them apply it and do it in a bit deeper context. And, and lo and behold, their language choice and misconception popped out. And, and it's by slowing down that you get kids and making kids do something a little bit more complicated that you really can dive into those practices. And five, 10 years ago, I probably would have just done that first activity on how to do error bars and then moved, yep. right, moved right on to the next thing. Um, yep. But creating that space where they're, they're actually doing something a little bit more authentic allowed me to let them express their conceptions, kind of going back to what we talked about in modeling and mm -hmm. use word choices where I actually think that a lot of them understand it, but they just weren't making good word choices. But that's that's how we communicate. So um, now they're going to get a bit. Now they'll they'll all get it better. So. <laughs> Yep. So exactly. All right. So uh, we're we're getting towards the end here. Um, but before we move to um, what you do when you're not teaching, what are you looking forward to in your classroom? I mean, you're clearly working with lots of teachers, which gives you an opportunity to see lots of cool things and and get the wheels turning for your own students. But what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the years to come? Well, I'm you know I'm always looking for the next thing. So I feel like the modeling thing. I think in general, you know, running my formative assessment on, you know, the science teacher population, they seem to be getting the modeling thing, you know, definitely had, have been doing, I don't know, three or four of these presentations with modeling. I, I could see just from the input that I'm getting, the conversations that I'm having that, that teachers get it for the most part. So, so what's the next thing? So what I'm working on right now, I'm, I'm starting standards-based grading. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm trying to work that out, um, cause there are so many different ways of applying that. Um, I want to work on more standards-based, uh, performance task assessments. So more like scenario-based, uh, type of assessments where they have to apply what they've learned. Um, I'm always revising my learning targets. So I'm looking at the, the performance expectations, looking at the, the verbs and the keywords and 
putting that into my targets. And then that helps me design my assessments, whatever that might be. And it could be a model. It could be a performance task assessment. It could be a CR, for example. Um, let's see other things. I want to develop better phenomena or at least include the students in developing the phenomena that we're going to study for, you know, an instructional segment. Hmm. So I'm trying to come up with things with that. Another thing I really want to work on is um, taking what they've learned and take action. So whatever they're learning, um, they're not only applying it, but they're taking action, whether it's like a soapbox speech or a presentation to an authentic audience or creating something for the community or cocktail contacting people outside of the classroom, getting out of the classroom um, and taking action. So more along the lines of civic mindedness. Hmm. Um, gosh, what else? Um, <laughs> another thing too is, you know, I, you know, I do teach at the college and it's pretty traditional because there's just so much information that we have to teach them. It's not like AP where they got rid of, you know, a, a large chunk, even though it's still a lot. Um, it's, you know, there are these course outlines on record and you're supposed to teach according to what's, you know, in the files and, and, uh, and actually was at a conference a couple days ago and there was a college professor there at one of our Cal state schools and she teaches this way. And so I'm like, I can do it this way. And I feel like such a hypocrite because I <laughs> feel like I'm doing all these great things with seventh graders and high schoolers. And yet I go to the college level and i'm still lecturing and occasionally breaking away from it but still largely lecture based so i think that's you know i know that's a different level but i, I do want to start practicing some of these things that i'm doing in secondary to post-secondary or higher ed so those are some things and, and i guess most importantly just learn to have fun be in the moment i know we're all stressed and we have emails and or you're running PD, whatever that might be, or and you got to make sub plans because you got to go to the district because that's what I do a lot. Um, but those, I still have those smiling faces out there. I need to have fun. Mm. Um, I'm there for them, and just remind myself to just always be present for them. Well, it's a pretty pretty extensive uh, set of goals, so <laughs> a lot to work on. I will say that. Yeah. From some of the workshops that I've gone to the last couple of years, um, this past summer I was in, uh, I was down at UConn and I was one of the few high school teachers who were working on this tiny earth microbiology curriculum. And a couple summers ago I was out at a Pogel workshop and like a lot of the teachers there were college instructors looking into getting into Pogel. Um, so there's definitely on that next level, you know, instructor, instructors are looking at, you know, getting beyond PowerPoint getting into group work, getting into project-based work, getting into, so, you know, it, I, I don't know how broadly it is used. And I think it was only going to be brought as, as strongly implemented as the incentives on that structure are uh, to value teaching and value the content of instruction, uh, which happens different, at different schools, but it's definitely a community that's working on that. It is slowly. Yeah. <laughs> <Very slow. laughs> yeah, the R ones might be a little slower. Um, so, <laughs> a research focus that's like, what did you? What kind of grants did you get? So, exactly. all right. So, when you're not in the classroom, what do you? What do you like to do? What do you spend your time doing, Ron? Um, well, I try to spend time. You know, talk about being present. You know, trying to spend time as much quality time with family and friends. Because uh, sometimes that gets pushed aside for work. Um, travel is a big part of my life. I just like to be outside. I'm a nature kind of guy. Like I imagine most science people, especially biology people. 
Uh, so I like to, you know, be outside to hike or run or trail run if if I have the stamina for that. <laughs> uh, I love to listen to music. I'm always listening to music, you know, in between classes, during class, you know, obviously going to work and back and going to concerts seeing, and just listening to some live music is always um, reinvigorating, I suppose. So I think those are largely what I do. Garden. I like to garden, too. That's therapeutic. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, and get my family or namely my son involved in that process too so we actually have some quiet time to chit chat you know while we're i don't know potting plants yeah as you rub it in your southern california um <laughs> to, today i was i was turning over we have the snow has melted enough from our big snowstorm that we had a couple weeks ago and i was over actually getting some stuff out into the compost pile which, you know, will freeze over the next few weeks. And then, uh, we'll be, I'll be able to turn it over next again in March like that. <laughs> but yeah, that's the tundra of your compost. Yeah. It, it turns into compost. Actually, it's funny because I've, I've dug in to it because I've, I've pulled stuff out of there for, for some activities before, but, um, if you get through the top crust, it always stays warm. Um, uh, like right. if you yeah. get down in that level. So I've done, I've used a thermometer in it. Um, I've actually wondered about like burying a thermometer. Like, for your kids, yeah. Your students. Yeah. I've thought about burying a, you know, a, like something that has like a, a Bluetooth thermometer or something like that underneath the, right. to, to track it. But, um, yeah, but for now, <laughs> I was just happy to be, it was warm enough that I could get stuff out there. So that is really cool, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, one of the other things I like to give everyone an opportunity to do is ask me questions. So before we get to our picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? I have a question. Yeah. yeah. So what have you learned about school or teaching and learning from conducting all these teacher interviews? Is there some kind of common thread or theme or what are your takeaways from now you're on number 80 something? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, there's been a bunch of takeaways. I mean, for the most part, as I've often said, this podcast is like just a like self-indulgent indulgent professional development thing for me uh, where it gives me the opportunity to like, you know, like I, this whole thing about like you describing your job as a coach and, and going in and, and talking about lessons is just like turn the wheels over and provided me opportunity to see, you know, possibilities that are out there. Um, but I guess the, the sort of biggest through line I've had um, from everybody is that there's not one right way to do what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. and like as a collective, there's so many different ways to approach the thing that we're doing. Um, but the most effective and the most, uh, engaging way to do what we do is when it matches your what's important to you and your pas passions and personality with the needs of the students who are in front of you. Um, and teachers who are like the happiest and the teachers that are most effective are the ones that are themselves in the room mm -hmm. and are present for the kids that they have in front of them. And so if you were to take me out of my school and drop me down into a different school, I would have to teach very differently in some ways because my population where I teach is the population I teach. Those kids I see every day, they're the kids I see every day. And the culture in a different school will be different and the students' backgrounds and needs and you know where they are will probably be different. But I would still need it to be something that I'm authentically excited about doing and it would have to match with what it is that is sort of in my skill set and what it is in my abilities to do. Um, I cannot, I will not be teaching them how to read a novel. 
Like I don't, I don't know how to do that, <laughs> but I know, I know how to design an experiment. Um, I know how to run labs. I know how to access molecular stuff. I know how to connect with existing labs that are out in the world. These are things that I know how to do. And then if I figure out how to take the things I'm excited about and match it with the level and the placement and what my kids can do in front of me, then something special happens. Um, Absolutely. And that happens everywhere. Like all over the country, there are teachers that are doing that, that they have gone through their journey. They've figured out authentically who it is that they are as a teacher. They've learned enough about the kids and the personalities and the culture of the group that's in front of them. And the really sort of special teachers are the ones who can match those both up. And so for me, the thing I've learned is that I probably undervalued um, the culture and personality of the kids in front of me. Um, in terms of taking that into account of what I needed to do. Um, it's not to say that I didn't do it. I just, as you said earlier, you like to be conscious and aware of what you were doing. And a lot of what I was doing was good for them, but it's I had stumbled into doing things that were good for them. It wasn't through a lot, a large series of conscious choices where it was like, what's right for this group? What's right for this group? It was like more trial and error and stumbling to that. <laughs> um, and so now trying to be both conscious of who I am and what I do and my strengths and weaknesses and try to, you know, lean into my strengths and improve my weaknesses, but also same thing for my students. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And do that. And I think, you know, that's good. And, uh, the other thing is that, uh, teaching is kind of awesome. And if you listen to the news and you pay attention to the news out there, you wouldn't know that, um, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. But I have over 80 conversations with teachers who are like, even on their hardest days, really fundamentally enjoy what we're doing. I, I agree. So with you. All right. <laughs> so we have leaned up to picks of the episode and you, we've, we coincidentally without coordinating have picked very similar uh, picks, but Ron, what is your pick of the episode? Um, I would say science daily. My, my college students or I have well, my biology 100 class, uh, I have them do journals and journals and well, journals are really just like a current event type of thing. So they have to tell me what's going on out there and within the last two weeks. So it has to be relatively current and they have to obviously give me some kind of summary of what it is, um, and why people should know about it. And then lastly, how has it changed their thinking? And so this is a site that they almost always use. And if you just want something real quick, you want to know what's happening right now, um, Science Daily is a great place to go. Also, listen to NPR doesn't hurt either. <laughs> yeah, Science Daily. Yeah, so um, I, this is funny because I was actually talking um, to my students, and again, my AP students, and we were talking about quality of sources and what is the difference between like a primary source and a secondary source. And then even within that, like how do you vet whether or not something that's not a primary source is still giving you good information? And I used Science Daily as a an exemplar of something that's not a primary source, but no. is very, has good quality and is transparent about what the primary source was and their summary and almost always has the link to the primary source yeah. embedded within there. So yes, it's a sort of a more accessible summary, but it's also transparent where they're pulling their information from. Exactly. So yeah, that, that is nice. So you can go down to the bottom of the there there was some their little review or their summary, and you can get the the original article. Yeah. And then that go that whole other layer of you know credibility and things like that that you would have to vet as well. But 
anyway, still a great source. Yeah, I, I like it. And I like it is, uh, as I said, in that context of, you know, um, how, how credible are various things. And so you could even build this out if you wanted to then compare and say, all right, which of these two sources appears to be more credible? How do you vet credibility? Is a, That's sort of the conversation I was having. And I specifically was using this, this very source in that conversation about their choices. Um, there's also a science news has a website that is specifically for applying science news for students. So it's actually not Science Daily, uh, but it's Science News for Students, which is a similar source that you may, I'll, I'll drop a link for um, Science News for Students because it's very similar to Science Daily. Goes back to the primary source articles, you know, finds some information and gives you like a deep dive. It gives you both the, the news, but it also gives you some additional background science that may be useful for people. That's in there. And I, I was just at this the same conference I was referencing a couple of days ago, and uh, there was this college professor that was you know talking to us, and she said, you know, not even all peer reviewed articles are all that great. You know, there are better peer reviewed articles uh, or journals than you know when compared to others. So you still have to. You don't just end with, well, this is a primary source article, so this is the end all be all. But you know, there is there are some that are more credible than others. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I have found that the that conversation about what is a primary source article, uh, the whole pay for publication thing that mm -hmm. goes out there, um, it gets really tricky because if you want to go into a major publication now and you want your stuff to be open source, you have to pay for it to be open source um, in a lot mm -hmm. of journals. And the open source journals costs more to publish open source work. Um, mm -hmm. in terms of the fees associated with the journals. <laughs> so how do you parse out the difference between a quality vetted source where you have to pay versus a pay to publish journal that really isn't meeting that peer review of the community? So that's a, it's an interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma. Yes. <laughs> um, so, and probably beyond the scope of what I'll bring up with my kids, but, uh, but probably still, but still good for us to have in the back of our head. Cause I think that that landscape is probably going to be very different, uh, specifically considering what California is doing with Elsevier and the, the, the paywalls of journals, um, uh, recently. And I think the paywalls mm -hmm. with journals is a, is, is definitely going to be an issue. It's going to come out in science over the next few years that it's going to have to, there's going to be a reckoning one way or the other about that. Agreed. All right. Well, my pick, uh, sort of in the same vein of using Science Daily, is uh, using the resource uh, Science in the Classroom by AAAS. Um, and what these are, these are actually more for teaching um, and maybe not for middle school, but I could see maybe using these um, definitely at the high school level or the college level. And what these are, are these are journal articles that are annotated. Um, and so when you go to them and you select an article, you can look by, by topic or you can look, um, you can search, it's got a search box that's in here. Um, and you can find a journal article on something. Um, it's usually something that's been published fairly, you know, in the last um, couple decades. And what has happened with these is that they take something that's within here and then they annotate the article down to the point where it allows students to highlight the particular components of the article. So for example, um, I, I was just pulling out this, this Ebola outbreak um, uh, traced to the funeral of traditional healers was the article that was there it was a 2014 article that they have. And when you pull up the article on it, what you can do is you can um, click on either the glossary, previous work, author's experiments, 
results and conclusion, news and policy links, connect to learning standards, or references and notes. And if you click on any of the things in the learning lens, it highlights in that particular color all of that information. So if you click on glossary, it literally highlights all of the vocab words that are used that would be ones that you would need to be able to access um, as sort of a vocabulary list. So for example, you know, single nucleotide polymorphism. And then if you hide mouse over it, you can actually get access to what that means um, from a vocabulary standpoint. Um, so it's a pretty cool, like if you want to go down the rabbit hole of having students start to figure out, well, how do you break down these complex articles? It's a really great tool and it's depth. It's got a good depth because there's a lot of articles in here. Um, so I do teach in my, um, in my APs how to break down science articles. And this looks like um, a tool that I've never used before that I absolutely need to start using because uh, it, it does it so much more elegantly than what I have done in the past. You know, I've heard of it um, just recently, actually. I mean, I've heard of AAS before, but um, in terms of the science in the classroom aspect of it, and I haven't had a chance to look at it. So I'm definitely, definitely going to to look at it. And I definitely understand the whole going down the rabbit hole thing, because that's how I feel like every time I prepare for my college classes, because I'm always looking at like what's happening out there, you know, you know, today or recently. And and it's just click, 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 and just going here and there. I was just like, okay, there's no end. There's no end to this hole. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, so like, I don't know that, you know, maybe one of these articles happens to match up with the science that you're teaching on the college level, and that would be kind of cool. But going back to what you said, are they going to remember that journal article 10 years from now, 15, year, 15 years from now? Maybe, maybe not. But will they learn about the difference, but you know, the different aspects that go into primary source literature, the, the pulling from the existing field, the um, defining problems, the, the in actual investigation, the communicating their materials and methods, drawing a conclusion that builds off the work of previous work. Like those things, this makes all of that very transparent or much more transparent to people um, and can be a, a translational tool for an appreciation of primary source literature and also a skill on how to read something maybe more critically down the line to see whether it's a science daily or it's from some other source that's yet to be invented for them to look at that and ask, oh, is this really a quality source? Does it meet with the lens of what I already know about what a quality source should have? And I think this is incredibly important in terms of you know, increasing scientific literacy, because obviously most of our students are not going to go into science, but yet their world is filled with it, right? Mm -hmm. And filled with, you know, bad information, <laughs> uh, information, um, you know, gosh, you know, so many bad Wikipedia. I mean, it, I mean, I love Wikipedia, but you know, it's not a primary source article yeah. or, or source. Um, so they're going to have to make this, these, these decisions based upon the things that they read. And like you said, it's these skills right, that we don't want them to forget. They're going to forget an article they read yeah. most of, but not how they vet these articles. And so, and that's what I feel is probably one of my top priorities when I release students out into the wild, <laughs> uh, that they, they're going to have to make these decisions. And, you know, we are in a information, you know, load society type of society where information is at our fingertips and, and you throw in social media into it and it gets really convoluted, but they need to know what is good information and what is bad information, especially in regards to science. So yeah, that's great. 
All right. Well, thank you, Ron, for joining me. Uh, this has been awesome. It's a great way to kick off 2020. It's the first 2020 episode. Uh, let me do my uh, show credits. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. I'd love to see those numbers. And if you ever find a podcast player that doesn't have the show, let me know. I think I have it on all of them right now. Uh, so I've tried. Uh, Patreons can support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Um, I have a handful of Patreons. They are wonderful supporters. Uh, they help offset some of the fees for uh, hosting media and having a website and that sort of stuff. So I greatly appreciate their work. I also release uh, episodes early to them um, so they can get a couple days advance uh, listen before I release them to the general public. Um, music on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, you can get show notes on lifeoftheschool.org as well as on my Patreon page. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. I could not find Ron on Twitter. Um, I tried. <laughs> not on Twitter. Sorry. Yeah. Ron, Ron, Ron is very not on social media, sort of. He's got some, but most of it's pretty heavily locked down. So you cannot follow Ron. So don't try. So thanks for joining me. And I will talk to everybody soon. Bye.